two, one. More than 4,700 people were missing as of yesterday. Rescue workers have had a difficult time searching for bodies given the tremendous amount This was of recorded the day after September 11th. Let me start again, sorry. Three, two, one. More than 4,700 people were missing as of yesterday. Reporter Rescue Beth Fertig trying to break down what happened into pieces people could get their minds around. As of last night, 35 bodies had been identified out of 100... I'm Marianne McCune. I was reporting with Beth and the rest of WNYC's newsroom that day. We were doing what so many people did after the towers collapsed, searching for a way to make sense of things. Data. A detail or two. Something we could hang on to so as not to get overwhelmed. Because it was overwhelming. Everybody stay calm. This is Beth the morning it happened. The building is falling right now. People are running through the street. Smoke is everywhere. From WNYC Radio and PRX, this is Living 9-11. Stories from New Yorkers whose lives were changed by what happened that day. Can't even conceive it. It's the most heart-sickening thing you could see. You never thought something like that big would come down. New Yorkers are tough. It's a crazy world. You live here for a while and you think of yourself as the kind of person who knows that the world is a hard place. That death and destruction happen everywhere, all the time. But most of us were not ready for anything on that scale here. Marianne! Marianne, don't go! Okay, okay, don't go! Two jetliners smashing into the World Trade Center. This is a serious situation here. New York's tallest towers crumbling to the ground. Almost 3,000 people dead in one morning, in our city. More than anything, I remember how we struggled just to comprehend what had happened, to somehow bring it down to size. Were people jumping out of windows from very high up? Yes, they were. From, I'll say, maybe three quarters up, they were jumping out. This man was sitting on a bench just north of City Hall with a stack of photographs he'd already gotten developed looking down at the pictures in his hand instead of up at the smoke-filled sky. I'm collecting my thoughts. I'm trying to make sense of everything that has happened. That was before firefighters started searching through a thick mess of ash and mangled metal. We were there about six hours. We found one, uh, one leg. Everybody should in their own way say, say a prayer and ask God for help and for assistance. And, uh, we listened to our mayor. We craved guidance. And I want the people of New York to be an example to the rest of the country and the rest of the world that terrorism can't stop us. The emotions many of us felt on September 11th were too much. Our fear, our grief, our guilt, rage, for some gratitude for living, our desire to help each other, all bigger than what fits inside a human heart on any regular day. What did people do with all those outsized feelings? Some talked, some shut up, some got stuck. Some people got angry and lashed out or got into politics. Some looked to each other for comfort, some turned to God. We'll spend the next hour talking with people who've been absorbing what happened for 10 years. Especially at first, some of the emotional overflow seeped into the dark hours. 
In and around the city, it's hard to find anyone who didn't have a nightmare about September 11th. I used to have the one where I was, I was a jumper. Do I burn to death or do I jump? And I would always jump, and before I hit, obviously, I wake up. That's David Donovan, who at the time was a young, jacked-up stockbroker. For him, talking helped. He guesses he's told his story 2,000 times. I learned not to keep things in, get it out. I met David that morning. He worked at the May Davis Group on the 87th floor of the North Tower. When their offices filled up with smoke, they took to the fire exits. Then for 45 minutes, they walked down the stairs and emerged from the building just as the South Tower fell. After it stopped, I actually thought we were dead because it was so quiet, so dark you couldn't see. Dust started to settle. We made our way out, threw up, wandered around looking for other people. I was on the 87th floor, and then something hit. The building shook. And that's where I Collapsed. ran into you. You were uh-huh. on the 87th floor of yeah. the World Trade Center? Tower 1. I'm not sure what state of mind I was in, what I was saying. But I'm covered in dust. Uh, clothes are all ripped. It's like a war zone. It's uh, it's pretty scary. And then... Is there any way I could use that to call home? Yeah. Would that be possible? I asked to use your cell phone and call my mother. Oh, it's ringing. Oh, is it? Yeah. Mom, I just want to tell you I'm alive. I'm lucky to be talking to you. I don't know where anyone is. So I don't know how I'm going to get home, when I'll get home, but... I'm I'm alive. Okay, love you too. Bye. That's pretty much when it hit me. I think the next day, I went out for a jog just so I was alone. Lost it. Crying every day for weeks, weeks on end. For me, the hardest thing was the guilt. Could I have gone up one floor, opened the door, and... Ten people made it out that didn't get home that night. Donovan says what helped him the most was talking with the friends and colleagues who were with him. Hey, you're not crazy. I had that same nightmare. Steve over here, he's having it. Nelson had it too. It is normal to feel this. But talking about what you saw or felt or who you lost hasn't worked for everyone. Mom, can you tell me the story of what happened on 9-11? Okay. I remember waking up. Um, almost at four in the morning and seeing your daddy leave. I saw the back of his head as he was leaving. And then I went back to sleep. Carmen Suarez's husband was a New York City cop. They lived in Queens. Their daughter Jillian had just celebrated her ninth birthday. She was on her school track team and her dad was the coach. Were you scared to tell me the truth? Yes. I couldn't tell you the truth at that moment because I was not going to lose hope about your daddy being gone. So three months passed by, and then that's when they told me that they had found them. And then that morning I had to tell you that they found daddy. I just remember one tear coming down out of your eyes. How do you feel about me not talking about 9-11? I think you should talk about it. Do you feel that it's important to talk about your feelings in 9-11? I'm asking you that question. I don't know. Why? You don't know. I don't know. Don't you want to talk about it? 
I don't know. This is my first time talking about it. I actually believe in the usefulness of shutting up. Some people need distance, Yuval Neriyas says. He's spent the last decade researching New Yorkers' emotional responses to traumatic events. For some people, it's good to talk about traumatic events. And for others, it can really um, exacerbate the symptoms. Neria is Israeli. He fought in the Arab-Israeli War of 1973, and he was severely burned. Many close friends were killed, some were captured. I had kind of a personal interest in understanding the effect of extreme trauma on human beings and whether there is a way to help them. In 2001, Dr. Neria was on sabbatical from Tel Aviv University, doing research at Columbia in New York. When the Trade Center was attacked, he decided to stay. Now he heads up the Trauma and PTSD program, post-traumatic stress disorder. Neria is studying the brains of people who can't let go of traumatic memories. People like Chris Bauman, a police officer who was at work downtown when the towers collapsed. Sometimes you just felt like this, this is how the end of the world is going to look like. Chris and his wife Anne live in Babylon, Long Island, about an hour's commute from the city. Anne says when Chris got home at 3 o'clock in the morning, she knew he needed help. So when she heard a therapist talking on the radio about counseling, she called him. They've been seeing Dr. Daryl Feldman ever since. So, Anne, I guess I want to start with you today. How would you say Chris is doing lately? Um, better in some ways and the same in others. And, and is Chris still having some of the dreams where you actually have to get out of the way? We don't sleep together. I've heard her in his sleep. Things have been worse. Chris used to have a hard time leaving his house. After the attacks, he was blind from the World Trade Center debris and suicidal. He crossed a highway with speeding cars twice. His sight has since come back, but he's still not working. He's had days when he can't remember his kids' names. I have dreams where the dead come back because I should have died that day. And they, they try to take me to where I should have been. And my fighting back goes to my wife. I've punched her in the eye where she had to see a specialist. I've choked her, so we don't go to bed together too often. He goes to bed at 4 o'clock every night, every morning, I should say. He doesn't sleep. If you go to bed and there's a a lion, I I look at it as a panther, crouched over your bed, are you going to be able to go to bed and go to sleep knowing that a panther is ready to pounce on you? I've told Dr. Feldman and other therapists I've talked to, I said, uh, you got a PhD, you read a thousand books. You don't know what it was like. I found a kid's arm. I thought it was a doll's arm. Some doctor reading a book understands what that feels like. That you put your foot down on the dust and your foot slides and you look down and there's something there that used to be human. That lady died in my arms and I was there for a few minutes just like she, she had pipes sticking out of her, impaled. I've had people come up to me and ask me, you know, my daughter or my son was there, do you think they suffered? You know, first thing that pops in your head, my God, maybe I could have saved this son or daughter. They didn't have to suffer. 
What else would you have done? Were you trained for that? No. Yeah, I was trained for that. You were trained for a catastrophe? You were trained for emergencies. You, you this know. was beyond an emergency. You were ripping men's shirts and making tourniquets for ladies, for their legs, for their arms. He's kind of too modest to talk about this, but I would imagine he saved a couple thousand lives by asking people and telling people and directing people to get away. That's what you're paid to do. Your job as a cop fireman or even EMS is to try to save as many as you can to run into disasters. I'll never be at peace. I'll run to the store, you know, simple stuff. I'll do the wash. I'll get animals I take care of. I have uh, four chickens and two rabbits. They, they produce, in fact, there might be an egg in here now. Yep. Nice brown egg. <laughs> I spent a lot of time out here. I'd love to get a goat. Chris's animals give him a sense of peace. He and Anne and their kids like to spend September 11th in rural Pennsylvania. That's what I plan on doing forever, I guess. <laughs> Or until this passes. If it passes, it has not passed for 10 years. Uh, It It has not changed. It has not gotten better. It just, it's gone to different levels. 9-11 put a big stop sign in front of my face. And it's so big I can't walk around it. There's no walking around it. Multiple studies of mental health after September 11th showed about one of every 10 New Yorkers had post-traumatic stress disorder in the immediate aftermath of the attacks. One in 10 of us. Dr. Yuval Neria can pinpoint almost exactly who was most vulnerable to PTSD or depression or suicide. People who saw others jumping or dying. People caught in the dust cloud. Parents who lost a child. Poor people and immigrants were at higher risk. Ten years out... Nerea says the majority of us have recovered, but not everyone. Recent research shows at least one in ten firefighters are still debilitated by PTSD, their fears or guilt or grief. And that rate is increasing. What I feel is a certain degree of helplessness that I can actually substitute with perhaps motivation and eagerness to do more and to know more. So we are looking at the brain. Neria takes me to his office to show me the MRI scans he's been looking at. What I'm very interested in understanding is why some people are able to extinguish traumatic memories and other people are struggling with them. He's partnered up with Dr. Mohammed Milad of Harvard, a Palestinian colleague. And it's the first time anyone has looked inside the brains of people with PTSD before and after treatment. The treatment is a type of talk therapy, but it's very specific. The patient is supposed to recount the memories he finds most disturbing over and over again. They may go physically to the places that they have been, subway stations, the World Trade Center site. Eventually, the patient is supposed to learn how to experience those memories but without the intense fear or guilt or other overwhelming emotions that used to accompany them. To learn how to use those memories under non-9-11 conditions. 
studies show that prolonged exposure therapy, as it's called, is more effective than drugs. So you see the amygdala, this little place here, you see the yellow place. And what the MRIs show is this. In PTSD patients, the areas in the brain that experience fear are overactive. And the areas that help quell fears seem not to be active enough. Of neurons that are responsible to process emotions. After patients undergo the therapy, the fear part of the brain seems to settle down some, and the part that calms us starts working harder. Basically, PTSD seems to actually change how different parts of the brain process fear. If we can, in the future, get a close look at the brain, know exactly where the damage is, and then target our intervention to this area, this is really our goal, and I don't think it's very far away in this case. It's not science fiction. I don't think so. Not anymore. It's coming. This is Living 9-11, a WNYC special documentary about people who are still absorbing the impact of the World Trade Center attacks. I'm Marianne McCune. In a minute, one family falls apart and comes back together after losing a son. There were times you were so upset that you'd say things like, I know you wish that it was me that died instead of Paul. You can learn more about the people in this special and see their pictures at WNYC.org. From WNYC Radio in New York, this is Living 9-11. Stories from people who, a decade later, are still trying to make sense of what happened on September 11th. I'm Marianne McCune. I just feel like a gaping hole in my chest, and I figured if I came out and tried to... All over New York, the day after the attacks, people gathered together. Came here to uh, share support, just be in solidarity with everybody else. To kind of connect with the greater community. They wanted to be close to each other. Feel a part of something. And is it working? It's working. It's it's pretty devastating. But they didn't always know how to talk about what happened. I don't think I could possibly put words to anything. It 
Erin Rieg and her sister Allison were 11 and 13 on September 11th. We were directly affected, but it wasn't happening to us. It was happening to Dad. Their father, Robert, was a New York firefighter. And when the first tower fell, he was knocked down and covered in ash. He survived and made it to a hospital. Erin and Allison were back in school the next morning. We had our sandwiches and everything all packed away. Like, you know, it was just any normal day. Allison remembers a teacher asking her to stand up and tell her whole class what was going on. No buffer, no filter on her at all. Oh, what happened to your dad? Lady, I don't even know what happened to my dad. <laughs> like, go drink your coffee and teach math like you're supposed to. Like, teachers, like, would come up to me during the day and be like, are you okay? Like, do you need want to go talk to someone? And I said, no, I'm okay. I was forced to go. And I sat there and stared at my hands, was just like, no, I'm okay. I don't understand why we felt the need to, like, clam up. In families in which someone died, one of the biggest challenges was to find a way to support each other. Kids looked to their parents for guidance, but sometimes parents were in bad shape themselves. Just two years ago, the city's health department published guidelines on how children react to traumatic events. They say middle school kids, around 9 to 11, are particularly likely to vent their feelings through aggression and rage. Eric Leinung was 11 when the towers were attacked. His brother was killed. Everyone in his family struggled to keep their emotions under control. Families are complicated, especially mine. Eric, you were a pain in the ass always. Honestly, you just really were. I had bad OCD and ADHD. You were a complicated kid. You had a lot of issues. And my mom was explosive. There's a certain streak of stubbornness that runs in the family on both sides, which did not skip you. (laughs) My brother Paul was 10 years older. We used to play video games in his basement apartment for hours. He was the person I told everything to. And he was very protective of you. Like this one time, when we had to go to my little cousin's christening. We'd gone crazy to get you dress shoes. Finally, I sent Paul to the store with you because I had just about had it, and he came home with these cute little hush puppy-type shoes. Nope, they bothered your feet. And on the way to the party, and you squeezed them out the window. I think I wanted to kill you, but he was like, don't kill him, Mom, just have a glass of wine. You'll feel better. (laughs) So that's the kind of brother he was. Uh All right, let's start. Here's the show starting right now. Calling Mom. She's a big person. When Paul went away to college, he had a radio show. Hello? Hi, it's me. Hi. You're live on the radio, no cursing. No. Hi, Mom. Okay, well, now here's your mother live on the radio. Both of you stay. Oh, for crying out loud. Both of you. Can you live on the radio? Yeah, Eric can too. (laughs) Hi, Paul. Hi, Eric, how are you? How are you doing? Good, how are you doing? This is Eric, my 10-year-old brother. How are you doing tonight? Good. Paul got a job at the World Trade Center straight out of school. He was at work on the 100th floor when the planes hit. I realized, Dad, I'd never find him. That with all that falling on him, there wouldn't be any him. I felt terrible that I had to tell you your brother was killed and never coming home. My mother stops going to work for the next couple of months. She spent a lot of time in her room. And your sister kind of withdrew. I wanted to join the military, hop in a tank, and roll it over Osama bin Laden. But I was a kid, and I couldn't do that. I couldn't even mention that I missed Paul. Because my mom would start crying. So I would throw things and hit people. My mom and I would hit each other. 
Afterwards, I would feel so guilty that sometimes I would throw up. There were times you were so upset that you'd say things like, I know you wish that it was me that died instead of Paul. Well, sometimes I felt like when Paul died, you forgot that Kristen and I were still around, and it hurt me very deeply that day when you were crying and you said you had nobody, and I said to you, Mom, you have me, and you said, no, I don't, you don't even have yourself. And for years, I thought that you didn't want me around. Possibly because... I had so deeply wished that it had been me instead. Mothers don't feel like that ever. You know, what I meant when you didn't have yourself was, yeah, you were still trying to find yourself, Eric. You were a baby. So what I meant was, how could I talk to you about my problems? Obviously, it was a painful statement, and I'm sorry. But you've got to learn to forgive people and move on. You know, and I was in a shock, too. And it's 10 years later. And as a grown-up now, or at least somebody who's growing up, can you try to understand that much? Of course. But you haven't let it go. You still haven't let it go. We were in a situation that was seriously screwed up, wherein a member of our family was murdered. I'm in the car with my dad, driving home from college. You had to grow up, and I had to try to help you grow up within that context. He's always been a peace activist. So his reaction to 9-11 and to our family's pain was to try to solve the bigger problem. While I was fantasizing about revenge, my dad was lobbying to get us out of Iraq. He joined a group known as 9-11 Families for Peaceful Tomorrows. Do you feel at all, as I know Mom feels and as I felt sometimes in the beginning, that you got a little too wrapped up in the work with Peaceful Tomorrows and forgot about our family? You know, that's a hard thing to say because I had to try to find a little bit of time to try to take care of me, too. For a long time, I felt completely alone. So in sophomore year of high school, I asked my dad to teach me how to play guitar. And that's an A. I also asked him to take me on a peaceful tomorrow's retreat with him. I was the only kid there. Everyone had lost family, so they knew what it was like. They didn't know Paul, but they were willing to talk to me about him. They also talked about how many civilians were being killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. It wasn't just about my family anymore. I've come a long way. But I still get angry. You're doing very well with that. You don't lash out at people or break things anymore. I still yell sometimes. So does my mom. Uh, You and I could talk somewhat. (laughs) But it's still kind of hard. It's, It's still that absence. I'm still ashamed of how I acted back then. And afraid if I stop feeling guilty, I'll slip back into the same habits. I think every one of us feels we could have done better. There wasn't any roadmap. I had to get through something like that. And so everybody just did the best they can. Everybody has to forgive themselves first and then just forgive each other and move on. Eric Leinong spoke with his family as part of our Radio Rookies series at WNYC. This is Living 9-11. 
traumatic experiences can create emotional chaos. And Yuval Nuria says that's part of what terrorists want. He's the psychologist we spoke to earlier at Columbia University. Dr. Nuria has spent a lot of time researching and thinking about the impact of terrorist attacks. The whole idea of terrorism is really to harm the very basic way people live with each other. People lose control over their emotions and sometimes misdirect them in private and in public. Terrorism is really about changing psychology. We are kind of rapidly changed without even being able to choose whether it's good for us or not. So it's when our emotional reactions take over our ability to think things through right. and make choices. Right. right. One consequence of the September 11th attacks, people lashed out at anyone they thought was Muslim, at people who have nothing to do with terrorists. Norhan Basuni grew up in Brooklyn wearing a headscarf, a hijab. She says after the attacks, she did get the feeling Americans were at war with Islam, not just terrorists. When I was in junior high school walking in the street two days after 9-11, someone pulled my hijab off while I was waiting for the bus. And he was a grown man. You had people who felt like this was the right way to take their anger out. It was okay. People were angry, afraid, and confused after September 11th. It should never be implied again that we're safe or nothing would happen. Across the Hudson River in Hackensack, New Jersey, Harry Comp was running the Parisian Beauty Academy, a school for hair and makeup. But he was also trying to channel his fear into action. Don't assume it was left by accident. If you see something, say something. An ad agency for New York's Metropolitan Transportation Authority invented that slogan. Local and national law enforcement leaders told us to call in tips. But it was sometimes hard to figure out what exactly was suspicious. One day I saw this Lincoln town car and a man with a beard and a headpiece on. And Harry Comp said he saw the car and driver a few times. One day he tailed the driver and even forced him over to the curb. I kept asking myself, how could it be possible that Osama bin Laden is in Bergen County? Turned out... These people in the car were dropping off their child who was in my son's class. It made me feel so, so foolish. So he brought to his school a program called Cat Eyes, Community Anti-Terrorism Training Institute. Would you think this scene is suspicious just because of the race or religion of the two people doing the photography? You know, suspicious-looking people, you know? What suspicious-looking people? My name is Colonel Mike Placata. We did not want people's only indicator to be, you're an Arab or you're a Muslim, so therefore you're a terrorist. We did not want that. Mike Licata is a retired Air Force colonel. After September 11th, he spent several weeks helping sort through the pile, as the rubble came to be known. Then he came up with the idea for cat eyes, and at first there was a ton of interest. We used to hear comments like, you're the first person since 9-11 who's told me what to look for. Are people still interested in getting this training, regular civilians? A lot of it has slowed down quite a bit, to be quite honest. When I met uh, Colonel Licata this year, he was training employees of a Midwestern bus company. Okay, so is that you're from Wisconsin Dells? That's where the money is. There are federal grants to train transit industry workers. Next slide, Frank. There's also training for people who sell, say, fertilizer, because certain types can be used in bombs. But there's no federal initiative to train everyday citizens. And Colonel Licata says that's too bad. Really, it'd be nice if people kind of knew what to look for.
during the years after September 11th. Tips implicating Arab and South Asian immigrants who turned out to have no connection to terrorism had wide-ranging consequences. Anybody found to have an immigration violation was held in prison while the FBI investigated. Some were housed in solitary confinement for months. Detainees have alleged in several class action lawsuits that prison guards abused them. A Justice Department report later backed up their allegations, and prison guards were fired as a result. I want you to meet a young man who wasn't questioned by the FBI or detained or anything like that. He was pulled off an airplane because someone was afraid of him. But the episode marked him, too. My name is Osama Zidane. Osama is one of six children. There's five boys, one girl. And when I met him at his house six months after September 11th, his little sister made us tea and told his seven-year-old brother what to say into the microphone. Why did my brother have to put his pants down? They have no clue what's going on. (laughs) They have no clue what's going on. Osama was 21 when he and three other Jersey-raised Palestinian Americans went to Florida for spring break. We're all falling asleep. We're all ready to go home. And one of the security gentlemen came to us and said, gentlemen, have to go through a security check again. He says he still doesn't know why, but he and his friends were brought out to the gate, where three security guards were waiting for them. Checking us, had us lift up our shirts, had us drop our pants. There's people like at other boarding gates looking at us, staring at us, and, and that's what killed us the most. And everybody says, oh, we're sorry about this, the captain's request. The captain comes out, and he tells us some story that a female felt threatened by us. After the search, he says they were allowed back on the plane. But now, everything was different. Everybody was looking at us like they were afraid of us. And we were afraid of their looks. I didn't feel American anymore. I just felt humiliated and I just felt, like I felt degraded. A decade later, he's a very successful car salesman in North Jersey. And he still says being pulled off a plane that day changed his outlook. So, um... Can you tell her to call back in about 15 minutes? Thank you very much. Bye. I've been selling cars here for five years, and my name is Sam. Not Osama. For almost 10 years, ever since that moment, Osama has called himself Sam in public. He looks like he could be any ethnicity, whatever you want him to be. So when he and his friends got pulled off the plane, he feels sure it was because of their names. I'm very proud of who I am and and what I am and the culture that I was brought up and the religion I am. But at the same time, I don't want my name to hold back my family from eating. You know, why should I not pay my mortgage? Because my name is Osama. Basically, you've learned to adapt. Absolutely, 100%. If it's an African-American, Osama, and it's like, hey, hey, Osama, it's a cool name, you know? South Americans, it's great. I say Osama, they say, no, Bin Laden, no, Bin Laden. No, it's a, it's a funny thing. But with anybody that I think would affect my sale, Sam is the name. I'll have a a customer say, like, they'll say a racial remark, and they think that I'm just some Irish kid or some Italian kid, you know, and they'll say something about the damn Arabs. And at that point, that's when I go into, like, a real defensive mode where I'm just like, all right, there's no way in hell that they'll ever, they'll know my name is Osama, you know? That'll basically kill the soap. Is that painful at all? On the occasion where where you see like somebody that has that blackness in their heart and they are racist, you know, at that point, I, I get really upset at myself. Like, why am I doing this? Why can't I just say my name is Osama? Why can't I just be who I am? Like, people ask me, oh, what did you name your daughter? I'm like, yeah, I named her Jasmine. They're like, oh, okay, that's a beautiful name. Like, but that's not really her name. Her name is Fatin. Her name is Samah. You know, that's my daughter's name. After Osama and his friends got pulled off the plane... They filed a lawsuit against the airline, and they ended up with a settlement 
details of which they're not supposed to talk about. What Osama will say is it was not the result he'd hoped for. There was no admission by them whatsoever, like they did anything wrong. That's basically the slap in the face. If one person would have seen it and said, you know what, it's messed up what they did, that's basically what we hope for. Osama doesn't make a big deal out of what happened to him on the plane 10 years ago. He says he never talks about it with friends. It was demoralizing, you know? So it's not something you'd go around telling people. Does your wife know about it? Yeah, my wife knows about it. And do you ever talk to her about calling yourself Sam instead of Osama or pretending that your kids are named something else? No. I don't tell her that. I don't want anybody thinking any less of me. Like you are hiding who you are. You're, you're not being truthful to yourself. You know, like I wouldn't want my wife thinking of me that way. They'll ask me, oh, is your wife Italian? I'm say, oh, yeah, she is. I would never tell her that. Osama Zidane says he understands that people have to voice their suspicions, even after what happened to him. He remembers calling 911 himself once when he saw a plane flying too low. We need to be suspicious, he says, but not infringe on people's rights. That remains a delicate task. Richard Frankel is with New York's FBI office, and he says during the year after the attacks, the Joint Terrorism Task Force here received more than 20,000 tips a few of which led to fruitful terrorism investigations. The tips that we used to get back then would be very unspecific. There's a guy and, you know, he looks like a terrorist. That we tend not to see as much. What he's worried about is that people are getting too comfortable. If somebody sees something, they shouldn't hesitate. They should call it in. What if they're saying to themselves, this seems threatening to me, but maybe I'm just being prejudiced? The worst-case scenario is that we look at it and we go, you know what, maybe there, it was prejudice. It's worth the phone call to us. I'm Marianne McCune, and this is Living 9-11, a WNYC special following the lives of people whose experience of 9-11 changed them. To take a look at the people you're meeting in this special, go to WNYC.org. And stay with us for two perfect strangers who saved each other's lives. I know people who said, oh, I rescued somebody, but I never saw them again. You know, that wasn't my story. Back in a minute.
From WNYC Radio in New York, this is Living 9-11. I'm Marianne McCune. We're going back to people we met after the Twin Towers came down to find out how they fared. I met Stephen Malski on September 11th, just as he was leaving a hospital a few blocks from the Twin Towers. You have gauze over both your eyes. Yeah, yeah, just, just to protect my eyes. Downtown was covered in a layer of gray powder and stray sheets of paper from hundreds of now non-existent offices. Did somebody help you up in the end? I didn't get the person's name, but uh, somebody helped me and brought me to the hospital, and whoever that person is, I'm grateful. People saved each other's lives as the World Trade Center fell to the ground. Hours later, a carpenter named Paul Nieves was still in awe. People dragging people into lobbies, people being helpful, people caring for one another, that's what I see. Nieves was helping to organize the dozens of people showing up downtown to help. I'm sure they're going to have need for hands. The closest they could get to the site before police stopped them was the federal courthouse, about a half mile away. One group was making stretchers out of pieces of scaffolding. We're all New Yorkers today. It's not about money, it's about love. The next evening, I met a woman who'd volunteered to stand outside a hospital on First Avenue. This is um, a list with all the people that were admitted in the hospital. People were now walking from hospital to hospital in hopes they'd find their missing relatives. And I'm sure there's a lot of people like him out there, but Dan's ours, and that's the one we got to find. And Sandy Singh would check the list. How often are you finding people's names? Um, After maybe 1,000 people, then you find one name on the list. Sometimes, not knowing what else to do, she would just hold a stranger in her arms. I love my brother. I know. I hope. The city ached with sadness, but it also swelled with gratitude. Every time a fire truck went by, people erupted in cheers. When Brian Gestrin rushed to the site to try to help, he was hit hard in the back of the head. He's still not sure by what. He blacked out. The next thing he remembers, he was on a boat crossing the Hudson. Brian is a forensic scientist. He recreates crime scenes for a living, currently with the NYPD Crime Lab. For 10 years, he has seized on any new photograph, any new information to help him figure out who got him from where he blacked out to that boat. It's always going to be something in the back of my mind. And if I don't find it now or in 10 years, you know, maybe I will in 50 or 60. The putting it together will allow me to thank someone. Over the months and years following September 11th, some people did have the satisfaction of finding and thanking each other, like Chuck Diaz and Deborah Mite. Chuck was in a makeshift triage center in the city's health department when reporter Beth Fertig met him. How are you doing? Better than a lot of other people. His arm was in a sling made of a wooden ruler and a piece of masking tape. We heard the building starting to collapse. We ran. I got buried under the rubble. I don't know how I'm alive. It turned out that Chuck Diaz owed his life in part to a school safety officer who'd been called down to evacuate two schools. Don't even remember her name. We helped each other out. She had a flashlight, and we made our way through the darkness. Deborah Mite had been knocked down, too. But when she heard screams and moans in the darkness around her, 
she managed to pull a flashlight out of her tool belt and start shining it back and forth. I remember you telling me to follow the light. That's how they found each other. Can you see me? You say, yeah, I see the light, I'm coming. This is the two of them at a barbecue with their spouses and kids nearly a year later. We hugged each other. They were sitting in Chuck's backyard, telling again how they pulled each other over burning hot beams. I heard things falling around you. How they washed thick black ash out of their eyes and mouths with orange slush in a deserted Burger King. To jump over the counter. Then they realized the phone was ringing. The lady says, can I speak to someone? So I said, miss, do you realize what just happened? We almost died. And you're asking, I mean, I went off. And she goes, well, what are you doing in my store? I said, your store? Wait, did you hear what I just said? We almost died. So I said, your store is no good. We're using your slush. <laughs> Psychologically, it you know, bothered us uh, why we lived and you know, a lot of other people didn't. We're connected now forever. They became what they called 9-11 buddies. They talked to each other through nightmares and bad memories and just bad days. He said, hey, Deborah, how's it going? And I'd say, it's going pretty well. How's your day? Oh, my day was not going too good today. I had an awful day. Just don't know. I feel a little down. There was times that um, he would call me and I'd just start crying just because I hear his voice. I know people who said, oh, I rescued somebody, but I never saw them again. You know, that wasn't my story. Deborah has done well. She's now a senior supervising officer with the Human Resources Administration. She still lives with her husband and youngest son at the northern end of the Bronx. It's hot, so she serves up glasses of cold water. My name is Ahmed Mite. Ahmed just graduated high school. He was only eight when the towers collapsed. It's a bookmark in my life. That was the day I could have lost my mom. I remember her coming home and not being able really to talk. I'm glad she has Chuck in her life because how can you completely sympathize for someone when you haven't been through what they've been through? This is when we first met. This is his son, Chris, who loves pasta. That's his wife, Barbara. That's Chuck. That's me. It's a different kind of love that we have. It's not a love of husband and wife, it's beyond friendship. I guess you would say it's in the middle of both. He helped me and I helped him. We both helped each other as a survival kit. It's like it became a part of me. I'm getting a little emotional because I haven't spoken to Chuck in a couple of months. It's been more than a year. And um, I'm really worried about him. He's been going through some family issues and I haven't been able to reach him. I've been leaving him messages and texting him and he hasn't responded. So I'm a little concerned because we vowed that we would never leave each other. And it feels like a piece of me is missing. I'm okay. I, I'm, I'm fine. I have a beautiful church family. It's two blocks away. My pastor preached a sermon saying, um, who's holding your ladder? This is a church of relationships. 
because she said you always have to make sure you have strong people at the bottom of the ladder. I felt that Chuck was holding my ladder. Back at home, Deborah's husband is trying to stop his parrot from sneaking out of his cage while he's got the door open to clean it. I'm Adam. Adam is Muslim. He's originally from West Africa. They've been married 22 years. They have three kids. And now that Deborah sleeps peacefully at night, he says when she does bring up September 11th, he worries she'll get caught up again. To me, it's just just life goes on. He doesn't brush me off. He listens, but he'll say, you know, God is great. God is one. You know, get over it. He doesn't want me to fall back into emotional mode again. Like she says, Deborah is fine. She and her husband recently renewed their vows. She has her church. She has her family, many close friends. But she says none of them replaced Chuck. Sometimes I would just call his cell phone just to hear his voice. Hi, this is Chucky. I'm unavailable at the moment. Please leave a message. I'll get back to you when I can. Ciao. I'm not going to give up. I'm not. We did manage to reach Chuck on his cell phone after talking to Deborah. He said he's been having a hard time with his health. He's using three inhalers, taking medicine for GERD, and he's got the shakes. He says his doctors say it's all 9-11 related. A year back, he says he decided to keep Deborah at a distance. It just brings up too many bad memories. It's something I just can't deal with. During our phone call, he sent her this message. Deborah, I love you. You're always in my heart. You're always in my thoughts. And maybe I will see you on 9-11. It's easy to remember the immediate aftermath as a time when we all came together. One big team, total solidarity. But even the day after September 11th, divisions were apparent particularly over how to respond to the attacks. There were arguments. I'm not, I'm not trying to put you down. Me and, you know, I didn't make a judgment about you, so... This is war. That's just American bravado and ego. When you go to war and kill people, you never win a war. Some people wanted to help by enlisting. The Defense Department says for the first four years after September 11th, interest among 16 to 21-year-olds jumped by 8%. And 9-11 continues to influence young men and women. Take Michael Maltese... He's 22, and he's been in the Army Reserves for two years. He was just a kid when the attacks took place. I was only about 11, 12 years old, but I knew enough where people were going to have to start stepping up. I figured that if I had the talents and I had the ability, I would do it. On September 11th, Braulio Rosado was in the National Guard. He lived in the Bronx and had about two years left in his contract. When the towers were attacked, he was called up and he reported to the site, lining up with the rest of the guardsmen to receive his dust mask. National Guard, and those guys are armed. For three weeks, Braulio worked side by side with some of his closest friends. These were guys he had been in the army with. He went to college with five of them. They slept during the day in empty office cubicles and searched the site at night. You're in a war zone. Literally, this is a war zone. Three weeks of this, and the shift ended. 
Braulio took a bus home to the Bronx, got out, walked down his block. You wouldn't have thought anything had happened. People were talking, BSing, kids are playing. I saw a couple of people say, hey, what were you doing all this time? 3,000 people just got killed here. You know, that's what I saw when I came back after 9-11. I just saw people who didn't care that we were in war. Braulio still had to serve out his National Guard time, a weekend a month. But something had changed. I would go to drill with long hair. Captain would be like, you know, there's a barbershop down the block. And I was like, yeah, I know. I didn't have the love for it anymore. My dad had seen war, and he said, get out. I don't want you coming home in a box. And I personally been to about five funerals for my buddies. You feel for these guys. I went to a, a friend's funeral who his convoy got blown up by IED. And the thing that's, that really stuck to me was I saw his family, his wife and all his kids. He did not have to be there. It's a choice you make. My sons would be like, where's daddy at? Why is daddy not coming home? Why would I do that to them? That's not me, you know? Braulio has two boys. Ethan is six months. He's a good boy. And he was sleeping in his daddy's lap throughout most of our conversation. Nicholas is six. He played with his Wii game across the room very quietly. Braulio left the Army in 2003. But he's stayed in touch with his friends who've gone to war. There's a big part of me that feels guilt. That being said, I made the right choice. I agree. You summed it up right there. This is what makes me me. Come here, big fella. Can you pick up these things on the floor, put them on the couch, please? Do I have to? Yeah, actually. My guy wants to go away to leave this at home. Remember David Donovan, the Wall Street guy who walked down 87 flights and who struggled with nightmares and guilt? 3,000 people, all near me, didn't get out. I did, and I'm just some schmuck selling stocks. You know what he did? He ditched Wall Street. He kept at it for four years, and then he just got out. Now he manages a branch of Chase Bank in a Long Island suburb. I'm not a firefighter, I'm not in the military, but helping people in my way that I knew... How many checks? 150? Yeah. I mean, it could be something, something stupid as ordering checks or helping them get that home they want, getting the mortgage. In his wallet, David still carries around his World Trade Center ID. If ever I'm feeling down, feeling sorry for myself, I pull that out, look at it, and realize there's 3,000 people that would love to have any problem I'm having right now. I don't want to forget. Not that I don't think I can, but too many people made sacrifices that day that I owe them not to forget. I had a 767 jet crash six floors above me, and I'm here, so let's do something good. Let's help some people today. I think that making meaning out of a terrible experience, making meaning is very, very important. That's why Dr. Yuval Neria says anniversaries are valuable, even though they can aggravate anxieties. Neria is the post-traumatic stress disorder researcher from Columbia. And he says, yes, forgetting can be useful if the memories are interrupting your life. But remembering can also move you forward. It's really about whether you can extract meaning from horrible situations. 
I believe closure is overrated. I don't believe that it actually exists. Brian Gestring, the forensic scientist who's still trying to figure out whom to thank for saving his life. By closing it, what are you saying? You're saying, I'm just not going to think about it, I'm not going to do it, I'm going to move on? You can't. When you see someone jump off a 110-story building and you're looking at them and you're watching them hit the floor like a water balloon, you know, those are tough things. Watching anybody die, watching any human life cease to exist right in front of you and just think of the absolute horror that they must be in And how has that memory or that thought endured in your life? It's there. It's a piece of who I am. It's a piece of my psyche. I don't feel like it rules me or it owns me. All the experiences you have in life are something that make you who you are. And they either make you stronger or they destroy you. It's the irony of life. And I think in my case, maybe it's me, but I think they have made me stronger. How stronger? I think some people walk with a level of ambivalence in their life where they think, you know, if I lead a good life, nothing's going to happen to me, and that's not the way life works. Unfortunately, life's not fair. If there is one way this city has matured over the past 10 years, maybe it's that. Maybe we understand better that we're part of a world that is not fair that we can also be knocked down and divided, that the New York skyline could change in a single morning, and that we may or may not be able to make sense of it. And 10 years on, it's also clear we are living with this new reality. We can still fall in love on the subway or have a barbecue in a friend's backyard. We can still argue. We can change our minds. We can try and stumble and move forward. You've been listening to Living 9-11, a special from WNYC. Go to WNYC.org slash 9-11 to learn more about the generous people and the wonderful music in this hour, composed by John Ellis. Emily Botine and I produced Living 9-11. Karen Frillman was our editor, Chris Bannon, the executive producer. Many of these stories came from WNYC's newsroom of 10 years ago. Mark Hyland was our host. Current WNYC reporters Fred Mogul, Beth Fertig, Arun Venegopal, and Amy Eddings contributed to this special. Thanks to Andy Lanzett and WNYC's archives, Courtney Stein and the Radio Rookies with Kari Pitkin and Sonda Tai. Paul Schneider and Jim Briggs III mixed this special with help from Mike Jones. Living 9-11 is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange.